0: Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host, Kate Price-McCarthy.
1: Hi, Hattie. It's such a lovely time of year when you want to sit down with a book next to the fire, getting all cosy. But the weather's at the moment, instead still a bit too warm. We've got that gel on the end, so it's more like sitting outside in the sunshine. So what are you reading at the moment?
0: Well, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of cosying up. I don't know what this warm weather you're talking about is because it's not reached my house. Um, and curling up on a sofa with a hot water bottle, I'm reading A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting by Sophie Irwin at the moment. And this is the debut novel of this author, And it's so far giving me some kind of Bridgerton-esque vibes. We're talking about that kind of high society setting and a tale of a family trying to recover some of their finances via marrying into the right circles and things like that. It's written with a really kind of witty voice and very accessible. So I'm enjoying it so far. I'm looking forward to finishing it. How about you? What are you reading?
1: Well, uh, I would say I couldn't be more different, the book I'm reading at the moment, which is one uh, that was given as a present. And it's uh, a book called Word Slut by uh, an academic called Amanda Montell, And it's the feminist guide to taking back the English language. And it is absolutely fascinating. You won't think of the English language in the same way again after reading it.
0: I read that a couple of years ago and I loved it. It's one of my um, highest, rated books on my goodreads. So I'm really excited to hear that you're reading it.
1: Oh, there you go. What an endorsement then. So yeah, thank you once again to our supporter of BorrowBox, uh, the library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet.
0: Today's episode of Love Your Library brings you an interview with Ruth Ware, who joined Kate for a chat about her latest book, The It Girl.
1: Yeah, The It Girl is absolutely storming through the bestsellers at the moment, getting very highly rated and lots of coverage and quite right too. It's a it's a really interesting book that just hits exactly the right notes. Um, it's all sorts of themes and ideas that are quite, that are really interesting. And she talked to us, She's right, she was at the time right in the midst of, uh, of her book tour that was taking her all over America, all over the world. So a uh, very exciting time to talk to her.
0: And then later on in the episode, you'll hear us speaking to Ollie, who works at Petersfield Library as a library team assistant. He's given us a fabulously fantastical book recommendation. So we'll be talking about that and all the reasons why your next read should be by the author who wrote it.
1: Don't forget to check our show notes for a full list of all the books we talk about and any of the other library services that get a mention throughout the
0: episode. But for now, let's hear Kate chatting to Ruth Ware.
1: Thank you so much for talking to us today about your wonderful new Book The It Girl. I know that you're right in the midst of touring around telling the whole world about this now. So I'm kind of assuming that your pitch to describe what the book is about is going to be really on point now because you must have given an outline of what the story is so many times. But I wonder, would you mind doing that for us now?
2: Would you tell us a little bit about the plot and about the characters? Absolutely. You can get my polished version. Yeah, I'm speaking to you from Edinburgh. So uh, this can be my run through for tonight. Yeah, so the the book is about Hannah, who is a bookseller. Um, She's living uh, what feels like a fairly idyllic life, really. She's living in Edinburgh with her um, college sweetheart, Will. Um, They're expecting their first baby. Um, So on paper, everything's great. But we quickly learn that Uh, 10 years before Hannah had a fairly traumatic experience, um, which was that she found her college roommate April um, murdered in their room, Uh, April was strangled and the college porter was convicted largely on Hannah's evidence. So 10 years later, Hannah is trying to come to terms with this, trying to put it in the past and and move forward into a new chapter when she discovers that the man she helped convict, John Neville, has died in prison. Now, on the face of it, this should be good news. It should be, you know, give her a chance to close a really painful chapter of her life. But in practice, what it does is force her to face up to the fact that she has never been completely happy with his conviction. There are questions she's never been able to answer. And when a podcaster comes sniffing around uh, with some information that Hannah didn't previously have, she's forced to admit that not only did she possibly make a mistake, which resulted in an innocent man going to prison. If that's the case, it means that April's killer is still out there not only does
1: the book take these two different very different timelines of the time at university and then 10 years afterwards reflecting back on what has happened but it's also in two very different places. Now, I was quite intrigued by your choice of those two places, first of all, Oxford and then Edinburgh. It's interesting you're in Edinburgh now, but could you tell me a little bit about, first of all, why you chose Oxford and then later on for the for the later period, why you then chose Edinburgh?
2: Yeah, well, I suppose... Um... Partly I picked Oxford just because it's an intrinsically really interesting place. Um, I didn't go to Oxford University. I went to Manchester, which is a very different student experience. But, you know, Oxford is such a fascinating place. Um, It's fun to write about because the colleges are very small. So it has that kind of claustrophobic, you know, atmosphere where... Really, if you break up with someone in your first term there, you're going to be having probably breakfast, lunch and dinner with them for the next <laughs> three years. Um, you know You study in your college, you socialize in your college, you live in your college most of the time. And that just it makes for a really like interesting place to, to set a plot. Um, but of course, the other thing about Oxford, um, about universities in general, but particularly Oxford and Cambridge, is that often it's the first time that people encounter people who are radically different from them in the sense that, you know, if you go to a regular state school like I did, you're going to probably encounter people mainly from middle and lower incomes you're going to be geographically similar because you probably all grew up in the same town Uh, you're probably culturally similar for the same reasons and often when you go to university it's the first time that you meet you know for me it was the first time I met people who'd been to private school people who were properly wealthy it was the first time I met someone from Ireland there was a girl from Ireland in our halls you know it was just it was just interesting to see what happened when people were sorted by aptitude and subject you know we were thrown together not because of an accident of where we grew up but because we all wanted to study the same subject or we all had you know achieved the grades that were needed to get into that particular university and Oxford I think has one of the biggest sort of you know you have people from really just astonishingly privileged backgrounds along with people who are just fantastically bright and you know just forced their way in there So that it felt like a really interesting place to explore some of the themes of the book, which are sort of class difference, the haves and have nots, the way people present to the world. And then Edinburgh, partly it's just one of my favourite cities. Um, I love it. And I always think if I have to spend a year somewhere um, in my imagination, it might as well be somewhere interesting. But partly I was thinking, you know, if I was Hannah and I'd had this horribly traumatic experience at university and April is the kind of particular victim that the press tend to really go to town on. You know, she's young, she's beautiful, she's white, she's pretty, she's wealthy. You know, there's so many things that make her into a a fascinating story from the point of view of the journalists. And so Hannah is just doorstepped and deluged and hounded for her side of the story. Um, And I thought if I were Hannah, where would I go? And I thought I would go as far as I possibly could to get away from this uh, without probably going to another country. And of course, Edinburgh is, you know, it is another country. It has a different press. It has a different police force. It has a different justice system but it's not so far away that she wouldn't be able to go back and see her mom in an emergency. So I thought that's what I would do if I Mm. was Hannah. And uh, that's what I made her do in the
1: book. And those, the, the episodes at Oxford University, I felt so strongly that feeling that Hannah felt about being slightly a fish out of water. Was she going to fit in and feeling that uh, you weren't going to match up to the standard that everybody else had. I was assuming that you must have gone through it yourself. So I was quite interested to read that you went to to Manchester. So how did you get under the skin of that sort of feeling? What sort of research did you do about, about an Oxford student's experience?
2: I mean, in terms of research, I had a bunch of friends who did go to Oxford, um, including my sister, so I was able to just, you know, tap friends, ask them about their experiences, um, ask them how they had felt. I think ultimately most of these sort of emotional things are just down to me putting myself in the shoes of the character and trying to imagine how I would feel if I were that person. And you know, I think imposter syndrome is is something that so many of us suffer from. It's certainly, you know, something that I encounter as an author, thinking, why should I be allowed to to do this versus all the you know hundreds of other brilliant people out there? So I think it's just it's it's a something that's easy for me to relate to. And you know, I'm sure not everybody who goes to Oxford feels imposter syndrome. I imagine some people walk in there knowing that they got the grades and being incredibly and justifiably proud of that Um, but if it were me I would definitely you know I think there is a very weird experience that a lot of people talk to me about which was having been one of the cleverest people at your school you know one of the people who was always in the top few percentage of your class and then going to Oxford and finding that you were in a college with people who were exclusively in that bracket and suddenly you probably aren't the most clever person in your year or your tutor group because everybody else is just as clever as you and that I think can be a real shock to the system for some people and it's it's that that Hannah fears but actually when she gets there she finds that she can more than hold her own and it is an interesting time when you go to university
1: you suddenly it's a very vulnerable time you're leaving home for the first time but I was quite interested not only is she vulnerable then finding her way But also in 10 years later, she's pregnant at a time, I think, when women do feel very vulnerable. And I I thought it was a really telling moment when Will said, you're not a pregnant, Miss Marple. It is a very unusual situation that (laughs) somebody who's very pregnant and you kind of want to look after and protect her. And yet she's she's getting herself into situations. She's uncovering information that uh, that could be dangerous. Did you um, choose that that moment Uh, quite purposefully at a time of vulnerability
2: yeah no very much so I mean I think for me there were two really important turning points in my life and one of them was going away to university becoming an adult thinking of myself as a more independent person finding out who I was and then the second turning point which was in some ways the opposite it was sort of more about having my independence ripped away from me suddenly was having kids and that it was two completely seismic shifts in terms of the person I was and the way I considered myself and definitely you know the experience of being pregnant I think If you're, you know, relatively young and healthy when you have your first baby, often it's your first experience of being physically vulnerable and of having to think twice before you, you know, run up an escalator or jump off a bus because you could trip and fall. And I remember watching Fargo years ago, the film when it first came out and the detective in that is hugely pregnant. And she's just tottering about over the ice being really quite badass because she's, you know, she's a police officer. Um, But the whole film is, you know, it's filmed in this very cold environment where she's just, you know, there's snow and ice everywhere. And I just remember having my heart in my mouth the whole time, independent of what the bad guys in the film might do because I just was so scared that she was going to slip and fall. And, and that image was kind of in the back of my mind, I think, as I was writing Hannah. I wanted people to want to protect her, but also to have that, Because I think there is a real sort of um, there's a problem in terms of when you are a pregnant woman, people do want to wrap you in cotton wool. And actually, you're not ill. (laughs) You're just, you know, you're just having a baby and you want to carry on and be the person that you've always been. So exploring that aspect of Hannah and Will's relationship was really fun
1: it's interesting you mentioned Fargo because I was trying to think of another instance where a pregnant woman a heavily pregnant woman plays such an active role and it's uh, yeah it's really interesting to see that written about now I've read that you were really keen to make sure that the victim the murder victim was a proper three-dimensional character and it's great to see she's obviously featured in the title of the book as well so is that something that that you were consciously trying to do to make sure she was a proper three-dimensional person and not just kind of like a a cog in the um in the structure of the plot.
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, I love classic crime and I draw a lot of inspiration from sort of golden age crime. But if I did have a bone to pick with some of the books, not all, but some of the plots, do they do treat the victim very disposably, you know, their death is really just an excuse to set the mechanism of the plot in motion. I very much did not want to fall into that trap, you know, April is someone who has been defined in the novel by the press and the media and you know people on social media as a victim she's very much put into that box and so it was really important to me that the book didn't do the same thing that it that it showed the problems with trying to reduce someone fully alive and deeply complicated and complex and in many ways, unlikable, but in other ways, absolutely amazing, trying to reduce someone as complicated as that down to a sort of media stereotype of a victim. Um, So yeah, it was a really, it was something that I tried very hard to do was to bring April really fully and three-dimensionally onto the page in the past sections of the narrative and to make her as complicated and complex as possible.
1: Yeah, I did. I loved that the relationship they had. I can see that she's April. She's such an inspiration to uh, to lift Hannah out of her the normal way of approaching life.
2: Very much so. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the interesting thing about friendships is that we're often attracted to people who have very different qualities to the ones we do, and you know, that April does have some very difficult, problematic qualities as well. But fundamentally, what Hannah, I think, loves about her is the fact that she does push Hannah's boundaries. And she's, you know, she's spontaneous and she's fun and she's irresponsible. And she she makes Hannah do things that she would never otherwise have considered. And Hannah really admires that about her because she knows those are qualities that she doesn't have. Um, And I think certainly with my friends, yeah, I find myself choosing people who have qualities that I wish I had, but maybe don't. (laughs) It is
1: lovely to have that um, theme of female friendship running through this book. And I know you've talked about uh, The Secret History as being one of your favourite mystery books. So was that an influence on writing this book?
2: Um, I don't know if I would say an influence exactly, Um, but it's certainly, it's very difficult to write dark academia and sort of college set mysteries without thinking of Donna Tartt, because arguably that is the kind of, that's the one, you know, she set the bar pretty high with with that novel. But I think in terms of anything, I probably tried to go in a slightly different direction just because when someone has done something so brilliantly, you sort of don't want to tread too many of the same notes because you know that it's going to be very difficult to compare. So, yes, I, I, I it was definitely it was in the forefront of my mind as I was writing. But I, I think if anything, it made me try and explore slightly different themes to the ones that Donna Tartt's looking at.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you talk about dark academia, because I hadn't come across that term before, but I've been hearing about it quite a bit recently. Perhaps you could describe to people listening who haven't heard the term before, what it refers to, and why do you think it's become such a popular thing?
2: Well the funny thing is I, I had also never heard of it until I wrote this book and then I sort of emerged blinking out of this kind of post-pandemic cocoon that I was in and uh, realised that dark academia is now this huge thing on TikTok and that I had written a book that was mysteriously on trend. So it, it, I mean it's interesting because what is hashtagged or filed as dark academia is often not what I would understand by the term but I think it at, at, at its heart it means a kind of educationally rooted gothic dark lush sensibility you know very much the sort of oxford and cambridge um hamden college in uh, in the secret history even sort of hogwartsy kind of you know it could be anything from boarding schools to um i think cruel intentions the film would be very much dark academia there's often themes of privilege, um, there's a sort of a focus on the the beautiful buildings. So it is a kind of, you know, it's a way for people to explore themes of inequality, have and have nots, all of which are very, you know, very current in the in the current sort of uh, political climate. But I think, basically, it's a fascination for people who, you know, perhaps like me, grew up always wondering when their Hogwarts letter was going to arrive <laughs> and sort of having that, you know, in the back of their head. And I think, yeah, it's, it, it's just such a fascinating place to inhabit in your imagination. You know, the idea of going off and living somewhere with all of these witty, popular, clever, cruel people is intrinsically fascinating.
1: Can I finally ask, I know you are in the midst of uh, of promoting your book, but
2: have you got time to be working on the next project at the same time? I am working, yeah. I'm in the middle of writing, uh, uh, I guess it will be my gosh uh, seventh eighth book I can't count eighth I think yeah and it's uh I can't say too much about it because it's still slightly rough around the edges but uh, it's uh going to be about a security expert whose husband is murdered and she finds herself suspected of having killed him
1: Yeah, Ruth Ware was such an interesting person to talk to. She had really thoughtful answers for all of the questions I put to her. And I haven't read any of her others yet, but I intend to do so. I'm on the uh, the waiting list on BorrowBox. Uh, there's In a Dark, Dark Wood and The Woman in Cabin 10, one by one. So uh, uh, she's got a great back catalogue of books for me to enjoy over the autumn and the winter.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to have to top up my reading list once again, because I feel pretty inspired after that interview. Yeah, certainly one that is appearing everywhere on book lists and reading recommendations at the moment. So moving on to the second part of this episode, we speak to Ollie from Petersfield Library about what he's been reading and what he reckons that you should be picking up off the library shelves this month.
1: Ollie thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Now you're here to talk to us about a book that you've chosen by one of the nation's most loved authors but before we get on to that I just wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about the library you work in if that's all right.
3: Yeah no problem, um, so I work at Petersfield Library, uh, it's a fairly small market town but it's the second biggest library in in uh, in Hampshire. It's, it's very lovely, warm, welcoming. There's, there's about 10 of us, I think, who regularly work there. And every week we do, you know, our, your general library activities, rhyme time. Um, we also have craft clubs and construction clubs, creative writing clubs. More recently, we've been doing, uh, we've been handing out food vouchers and, um, and winter warm packs to, to those who are, who are in need. And this week is half term. So we've been having some some board game stuff, some, uh, some other craft activities, done some more reading and things to, for the children. So, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a lovely library and I, and I love working there.
1: Well, I must say, I think all the different libraries around Hampshire, they all have their different personalities. But I do have a sneaking love of Petersfield Library. I do think it's a, it's a really special place. I always enjoy any visits I make them. <laughs> okay, so moving on to your book choice, you have picked a Terry Pratchett book, which is always going to be a hit with uh, book lovers. Um, could you tell us a bit about the book, and also tell us why you think it's worth a read?
3: It was very difficult for me to pick pick my favourite Terry Pratchett book. Uh, he's he is my favourite author, and I was stuck between uh, three main ones. So I went for I was going for Mort. Uh, small Gods or The Hogfather. Uh, I finally settled on Small Gods as being my, my overall favorite. Uh, the, the summary of the book is that there's lots of gods in, in the universe of the Discworld, and one of them is called Om. Uh, he comes back to, to speak to a prophet and manifests himself in the, in the plane, and it turns out that no one really believes in him anymore. Uh, So he can only manifest as a tortoise and he has no godly powers or anything like that. Uh, And he comes across a a priest, a very low priest in in the order called Brother. He's um, illiterate and everyone kind of thinks he's just extremely slow and dimwitted. And this is the only person that Om can talk to, his new prophet. And the story is about them going through the world and trying to sort of figure out what they what they can do try and maybe reform the the church a bit if that's what om wants uh, or the people as uh, as now om has no power so he can't really enforce anything and the reason i like it so much is because i think it was the my first sort of introduction to um philosophy really as like a sort of 10 or 11 year year old and I think it, it taught me a lot, and and I I really love just some of the the witticisms and uh, and just the the knowledge of of Sir Terry Pratchett. Really, for me, I, he's he's an incredible author, uh, very intelligent, obviously, and um, he taught me a lot. So yeah, it was it was it was good to read.
0: Amazing. So you say you read this when you were a bit younger. Do you still pick it up now and, and reread it?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I must have read it like sort of four or five times at least.
0: So it's got that kind of nostalgia factor. Does that mean that you kind of pick up new things and new concepts every time you read it?
3: Well, there's things that I forget for sure. I think the, the, the stuff that is interesting and um, and sort of witty and funny or whatever, that, that stays with you. But you kind of remember it as you're rereading, you know.
0: Hmm. Hmm. even when you were explaining the book sort of giving a synopsis I've not read that one and um, as you were talking I was thinking I was imagining the premise in my head and I think it's it seems like a really funny premise you know like just these like juxtaposed characters in in different situations you know a, a lot of open room for the wit and and some like of that yeah
3: absolutely i mean you've got this incredibly powerful god who, who still has is in theory one of the most powerful gods uh, of the of, of the disc world but in reality no one is actually worshipping him anymore because they've kind of they're now worshipping the the structure of the religion not actually the god itself so he thinks he's all-powerful and that's how he kind of talks except he's just a tortoise you know and he can't do anything
1: so how how does this book fit in sort of time wise in order wise with other books
3: well it it's one of the stand stand standalone books it's not um it's not part of a um a collection as such you know you've got the sam vimes collection which is sort of police crime sort of stuff you've got the witches which is uh like feminism and and witches <laughs> so yeah this is one of the standalone ones i think there's sort of six or seven or something which don't fit into any particular part and, and for me some of those are the best ones i also really like the truth which is about journalism and newspapers and things like that and that's what one of the reasons why i love the Discworld. And also why it was so hard to pick a book, because they're just such varied, varied (laughs) topics as well. And always always something interesting, you know.
1: I'm going to make a a terrific admission now. I have never read a Terry Pratchett book.
3: Oh, I'm severely disappointed. (laughs)
1: well you know that's great I love it when a kind of world opens out I'm interested that you said you're kind of interested in philosophy and so on what what is his Terry Pratchett's stance on life do you get a feel for what that is all about I mean I I gather he was a kind of an all round good man but how does he connect with philosophy would you say
3: um well actually I have some of the quotes loaded up here I can't quote them from memory I'm not quite that intelligent um but I, I think this could give you a bit of a clue. So let me find that. Okay, so, so one of them was a um, quote from, I, I think, Om, the the god, or possibly brother, the, the prophet. I'm not entirely sure. But it says, um, what have I always believed that on the whole, and by and large, if a man lived properly, not according to what any priest said, but according to what seemed decent and honest inside, then it would, at the end, more or less, turn out all right. I think that that kind of sums up his belief really and and I mean there's there's a lot which might be a bit contextual but here's one which uh gravity is a habit that is hard to shake off uh he's talking about the the turtle flying down and about um was the first time I'd really heard the the story about the Greek philosopher who got killed by a by a turtle yes. yes you know supposedly true or not who knows but um so, yeah, I think that the, the whole story, I think, comes from that uh, that legend, if you will, about the oh, philosopher really? being killed.
1: I do love it when books of fiction, so many of them have sort of philosophical effects on you. I'm a big fan of Iris Murdoch, who was such a prominent philosopher and um, Tolstoy. Um, he's, he has reading War and Peace, just changed the way I saw the world. And it's, uh, it's wonderful the book can have the power to
0: do that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, Hattie, was there anything else you wanted to say about? Uh... Just just following on from that, really, I think it's especially powerful to read books that change your worldview and shape your worldview at a young age. And I think because Terry Pratchett's writing is really accessible, it facilitates that. You can enjoy it as an adult, but also you can access it as a, as a younger reader as well, which means that you're kind of opening yourself up to new concepts while you're still learning about yourself and forming ideas and and exploring and stuff like that so i think it's one of the things that is so special about this genre is that you know you it it forces you to use your imagination and that's the kind of the best thing about it really you get to exercise that part of your brain
3: yeah yeah and i i think it gives you more scope to tell those kinds of stories as well because you can say whatever it is it can be anything but it allows the the author and the reader to enter into a state of oh what what if this was real how would people Mm. react and what would they do and and that's what i love about uh the Discord in general is how they're always about something social they always is something that's uh relatable you know even though it's in a fantasy world it really Terry is telling a story about something that that you can you can think about in your own life.
0: Mm -hmm. I love the idea that an author can go and sit at a desk or wherever they go to write and just create a universe that's their plaything. Really, you know, they can shape their own societies. They can like it really explore things about human nature or about philosophical concepts in their own little sandbox. You know, it's really cool.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah, definitely. Mm.
0: So, what set this one apart from the other books, you know, if you wanted to meant give those a sort of special mention?
3: I mean, the, the reason I was sort of torn between Mort or Hogfather, both of those are, are stories using the character Death, who's who's its own like sort of personified character in in the Discworld and Mort is about him finding an apprentice. And it's, it's sort of waxes philosophical about life and death and, and the nature of what we are, really. Uh, and then Hogfather, it does all that as well. But it also kind of is talking about myths and tradition, because it's all about the Hogfather, which is um, Father Christmas, but in the Discworld. So it's, he, he goes missing and then death has to take his place. To, so it's like about death being father christmas and it's quite funny and um and yeah interesting to it, it, i think there's a famous i can't remember the exact quote but it's like he's talking about how we need to make up these uh, myths like like father christmas to believe the small lies so that we can then go and believe the big lies like hope and honor and justice because these are just things that we they're social constructs you know but but the, at the end of the day they're important
0: Okay, well, we've been talking about uh, Small Gods by Terry Pratchett. But to move on to another book choice, let's hear from Kate. What are you going to recommend to our listeners today then, Kate?
1: Yeah, I'd be quite interested to know whether it's one that, that Ollie has read, because I know that it, quite often people who've read uh, Pratchett would have read this series of books, which is the Rivers of London books, Is that? Is that a series uh, of I, I
3: know of them but Ben Aronovich okay. um, I've read I've read some of his or one one of his books but I don't know if it was in the rivers of London um, and it was quite a long time ago as well
1: yeah I think it was I did feel this isn't the whole area that is missing a bit from my library is um, this fantasy um, material apart from the Harry Potters which inevitably I read because of having children um, so because I know the Rivers of London is kind of police procedural, and I really always love a bit of a police procedural, I, uh, I did uh, did read the Rivers of London series by, by, as you say, Ben Aronovich. This one came out in 2011, and it is a really extraordinary mashup of a kind of urban police work, but also in this extraordinary mishmash of uh, fantasy world as well so mythical creatures mixing up with um, real London so it's a fascinating read and what I think he has in common I think with Terry Pratchett having not read Terry Pratchett is that there's a great sense of humour to it Um, and would you say that's something that is the case with Pratchett's writing too?
3: Oh 100% yeah it's something that runs all, all the way through I think there's there's Rarely a page where there's not a nice <laughs> smile from me. Um, yeah. yeah. And
1: it is exactly like that with the Rivers of London series. It's a very dry humour. Um, So that is a book I would definitely say uh, that if you enjoy, it just comes up quite frequently. When I was reading those Rivers of London series, it would then, you know, I was then recommended to read the Terry Pratchett book. So I think for me, those have got a kind of crossover and uh, with that crime solving element to it as well. So I was quite interested to hear you say there is a series with Terry Pratchett's novels that are, crime solving based as well
3: so there's a there's a main character in in the disc called sam vines and he is well he comes up through the ranks as part of the story to become the head the commander of the night watch which is basically like the police force in his facsimile of london called Ankh Morpork. and yeah so it follows him trying to figure out crimes and and what's been going on through with this backdrop of kind of magic and stuff
1: Maybe but quite similar to the Rivers of London series. I think with this series, it is actually London and it's the real London, but there's this all this hidden world that we're completely unaware of generally so that's
0: the, that's the premise that it works on.
1: is that so is that a book that you've uh, come across, Hattie?
0: Yeah I've well, I've seen it again, I've been recommended it, but um it sounds really interesting in that I think one of the things that works really well in fantasy and sci-fi is the proximity to reality you know the closer that is the more feasible it could be that this like entire fantasy land is just lit, you know it's like one kind of like veil away from from our world and i think that that is a really appealing concept for a lot of readers so yeah i I'd, I'd be keen to keen to read it
3: i i think it's nice having that that magical realism where it's it's almost just behind the curtain and you can almost believe it it's kind of like the Harry Potter series um the magicians uh and and rivers of London um but what one thing I liked about the Pratchett series was magic is integral to the world it, and everyone knows about it it's it's not hidden. And people just kind of wave away things by saying, oh, it's, it's magic, you know, <laughs> and it, and that's just how it is. And but it, but it's kind of tied in to all of the stories as well. Like, the, for example, in the moving picture stories, that's about films and stuff, the, the invention of films. All of the pictures are they're draw, hand drawn by tiny little imps inside the camera box basically and that's the that's magic you know yeah um, which is
1: which is very different from yeah the rivers of london where yeah it is the london you know but with this
0: all this hidden stuff that you don't get access to and one thing i love in those stories where it is kind of like the explained away uh, element of it you know where it is a kind of hidden world i love it when when the book gives you the, the explanation that people just in their minds will bridge the gap between magic and reality by coming up with some some kind of nonsense and it's that concept that I think is really interesting like people will just believe what they want to believe even if it's pretty weird looking or something like that I love there's always an element of that in those kinds of stories I guess that brings me on quite uh, nicely to the book that I'm going to recommend, because it's very much on the other scale. It's very much like the magic in this book is a part of the world. It's it's an integral part of the kind of world building there and everyone's aware of it. So I'm recommending a book called The Atlas Six by Olive E. Blake. And, you know, you'll probably become a bit more familiar with Olive E. Blake in an upcoming episode because I actually went and chatted to her a few weeks ago, but it will be in an upcoming episode. And, and I read the Atlas Six in preparation for that. Her new book has already been released by the time that we're recording this. And it's all about the Alexandrian society, which is the secret society related to the Library of Alexandria, which obviously was lost to time. But in this reality, it's still within time but it's been kind of created around a secret society whose objective is to protect knowledge for centuries and and you know these like dark secrets of the world their job is just to be the custodians of that of that knowledge
3: like a librarian then like a
0: librarian exactly (laughs) um and there, there are classes of people all across this universe with different magical talents um exactly
3: like librarians then yeah
0: exactly (laughs) you're not meant to tell anyone (laughs) Um, and um yeah some of these talented magicians are recruited or selected really for this secret society where they kind of work protecting the knowledge but also completing challenges to see if they're up for the task Uh, by the end of the kind of years period that they have as their almost like an internship
3: oh so it's kind of like a like a uh trial-y kind of thing then and then it's got almost like those um those young adult sort of high school kind of similar things like they have to have to do a trial and then they win and I always enjoy those actually quite a lot I, lo- I love a good coming age story
0: definitely and it's really fun I mean I would say that it's potentially you know it's at, at the top end of YA probably there's some pretty gory bits there's some pretty uh racy bits so it's definitely not necessarily one for the the younger end of the spectrum in terms of YA readers but it's definitely a really really good read and yeah there's a whole kind of dark academia vibe to it which is quite appealing I I give it
3: a go it does sound interesting actually
0: yeah okay it's interesting you're picking up on the uh, the popularity
1: of dark academia yes because that was something that came up with ruth ware in her book the it girl and the popularity of that genre it's amazing how a genre like that can suddenly uh, have a lot of focus
0: on it so um so yeah very on trend it was very very popular on social media so i think it got picked up on booktop and the community on there and it's kind of taken taken the internet by storm in a lot of ways it's a it's a good one if you're If you enjoyed The Hunger Games or were a fan of Harry Potter, kind of a series of unfortunate events, that kind of style of world, but also bringing in some of the darker topics, darker things. Well, I
3: did enjoy all of those, so you've you've converted one person at least.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's all about secret societies, magic. The characters are kind of deliberately all quite... Unlikable, really. They're all quite selfish and self-absorbed because they're talented and they know it, and they are using their powers for their own gain and things like that. I think it's a good study in um, some of the darker sides of humanity, which is again another interesting kind of philosophical concept. So I think it ties in quite nicely to what we've been talking about today. Well,
1: and also it's another link
0: to Terry Pratchett because it isn't there a quite a key
1: figure in the Discworld novels of the librarian. So it's a, once again, libraries playing an important role.
3: Absolutely. The, the, the librarian of the Unseen University, the magical university, he's got turned into an orangutan by a, by a rogue magical um, spell, basically. Of course.
1: <laughs> We've been talking about the Atlas Six by Olivier Blake, Rivers of London by uh, Ben Aronovich and Terry Pratchett's Small Gods. So before we go then Ollie are there any other exciting reads you'd like to give a special mention to
3: Oh what have I been reading recently I've got so many on the go I think I've got about 20 books on the go at the moment So I, well I've recently been rereading Fahrenheit 451 and what else so I've also got a book on well this is a non-fiction one but it's um, the language of animals which was or the se- secret language of animals or something like that, which was very interesting. Well, so there's so many, really. I don't, I don't. Uh, at the moment, I'm going through a, f- a few classics as well. Uh, I'm rereading some uh, Asimov books, the, the science fiction writer, and Kurt Vonnegut, *Cat's Cradle*. It's also very good. But yeah, I, I, I think there's so much information there out these days that I, I don't think I can really vouch for everyone's personal um, tastes no accounting for taste as, as they say
0: that's it well no that sounds like a a very good very good reading list to be honest it has given me a bit of inspiration to go maybe go back and reread Fahrenheit 451
3: yeah it's, it's a great book about um about book burnings <laughs> and and possibly how uh how that's a bad thing really <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and definitely not something we endorse at Hampshire libraries mm. <laughs> yeah I think that's the only thing I know about that book is it's the
1: that's the temperature that books burn at is that right
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah pretty much anything really
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. wonderful well yeah thank you so much for joining us and it's been a pleasure to hear from you and get some recommendations to top up my reading list I'm sure Kate's reading oh, list
3: yeah the, the our- ever growing yeah. list
0: <laughs> yeah thank you so much well
3: thanks for having me it's been a pleasure
1: It was great talking to Ollie. Our library team assistants are such a fan of knowledge with book ideas, such passion about the books they've read and that they're so keen to share with other people.
0: One thing I really really love about talking to the people from our library teams is that they've always got you know a trick up their sleeve to get you to read something that you've never even considered reading before. I think it's safe to say that we're both (laughs) We're both probably going to dive into a pile of fantasy fiction after that chat with Ollie. And you can look out for Ollie over in our Petersfield branch, which is, from the sounds of it, a lovely spot for a cosy autumn read. I have to say, there's something about this weather that's making it all too easy to curl up with a good book. Absolutely.
1: And although it's wrapping up now, I have been inspired by Hampshire Library's Booktober photo challenge on Instagram
0: to add even more titles to my to read pile. For listeners who might not follow us, we've been setting daily prompts for book lovers to post different photos relating to reading and libraries. If you head over to Hans Libraries on Instagram, you should be able to see some of the highlights. and uh, we'll, drop, we'll drop the link in the show notes as well so you can click on it there.
1: And even more excitingly, we're gearing up to launch a new tote bag so you can carry all your library books home with you in style. Uh, You'll be able to claim one free for a limited time. Just follow us on social media to find out how and make sure you don't miss out.
0: Well, that's about all we've got time for today. Thanks to Ruth Ware and Ollie from Petersfield Library for joining us today and thank you for listening.
1: I'm Kate Price-McCarthy.
0: And I'm happy to do that.